Good, good morning, folks. If I haven't had the honor of meeting you yet, my name is Hopewell Hodges, and I am a member of the volunteer preaching team. Some of you may know that I'm a grad student at the University of Minnesota. I'm a PhD candidate now. Um, I study clinical child psychology. Uh, my specialty is childhood trauma and resilience, which means I spend about half of my time doing scientific research on how communities like schools can support young people and families that have been through things like housing loss or forced migration. And then with the other half of my time, I am a therapist. Right now, my patients, my biggest one is 11, and my littlest is three. Outside of my work, I like watching nature documentaries, I like crocheting, and eating nachos with my husband, John, who's the cutie who was playing the cajon today. So as you might expect, being a child trauma therapist means I often hear stories about some of the worst things that humanity has to offer. But something that I wish other people understood more about this work is how trauma is never a person's whole story. So my patients all have favorite aunts, inside jokes with their friends. They have tons of people who have already started helping them heal even before I get to meet them. And generosity is often a really big part of these stories of healing. When people intervene in the lives of children and families when they're most vulnerable to meet their needs and to show them how much they matter. Families will get meals or rent covered during a crisis. A new caregiver will commit to pouring out extra affection and love for a child who is having trouble feeling loved. These are stories of generosity. Today is indeed the last day in our series on generosity. So far we've heard testimonies and encouragement about how it brings glory to God when we give and how it changes us in the process. Today I wanna to share some stories about how generosity can also transform our world because it is one of the most powerful tools God has given us to counteract evil and bring healing both for the giver and to the receiver. Would you pray with me as we start? God, thank you for being generous to us even today. Help us see where your invisible Holy Spirit is visibly working through our own and others' generosity. Amen. Today I wanna to focus on a special type of generosity that I think reveals God's love for our world in a special way. My first story for you is about an American ethicist named Philip Halley. Ethicists are scholars who study questions of what's right and what's wrong and how people choose between those. Philip Halley worked mostly between the 1950s and 1980s, and he was known globally as an expert in the lighthearted subject of human cruelty. So the way that he defined cruelty was this. He said it was an action, which could be individual or collective, that degrades the dignity of someone's body and soul at once. So there's this quality of humiliating someone who's already vulnerable and weak. And it grows the power difference between two parties, between the giver and the receiver. So what all cruelty has in common is this pattern of the strong lording their power over the weak and crushing them. To Philip Halley, our ethicist, cruelty was the worst thing a human could do. In fact, he called it the absolute fruit of evil. In other words, if a person has a little seed of badness in them and they water it and nurture it and prune it, it gradually, gradually will grow into cruelty. And after that, if they nurture it more, all it turns into is more cruelty. So through all of his work, Philip Halley had this nagging question in the back of his mind. 
Cruelty is the absolute fruit of evil. But what's the absolute fruit of good? In other words, what is cruelty's opposite? What's its inverse? He's pretty sure it's not kindness, because kindness, as nice as it is, doesn't do anything to address one person having unjust power over another. In fact, the American writer and politician Frederick Douglass, who was born into slavery in the US in the 18-teens, said that there was something especially evil about the moments when slave owners showed him kindness. He called it gilding the chain, like it legitimated the relationship, made it seem more okay when it really wasn't. So Philip Halley keeps his work going on cruelty, but this question keeps nagging at him. What is the opposite of cruelty? Unsurprisingly, given what he studied, Philip Halley spent a lot of time looking through accounts of Nazi Germany and other countries under Nazi occupation, trying to learn how it's possible for ordinary people to be cruel towards their neighbors. One day he's reading through an archive and he came, comes across mention of a town in rural France called Le Chambon. The people in this town numbered only a few thousand during World War II and they were very poor. Most were farmers and most were from a Christian denomination that had faced oppression for centuries. When France fell under Nazi occupation, something very unusual happened in the little town of Le Chambon. It started growing. All the new residents were refugees, mostly Jewish, who were fleeing deportation to concentration camps. Philip Halley was intrigued by this, but the records were pretty shoddy, had a lot of gaps in them, so he paused his research on cruelty and instead started spending his time going around to archives and interviewing survivors to figure out what happened in this town. He learned this tiny town was responsible for saving up to 6,000 lives during the war. Sometimes they forged documents to smuggle people out of France, but in most cases, these poor farmers of Le Chambon simply hosted. Jewish children whose parents had been arrested moved in with anyone who had a spare bed to set up. Some households had seven children living with them at once. When displaced families came to Le Chambon, they were quietly led their first night to a furnished room, free of charge, given a basket of food, and sometime during the night while they slept, a wreath was hung on their door with a sign that said welcome on it. The story is heartwarming, but it's also terrifying. Le Chambon was located just a few miles from the regional Nazi headquarters. At any moment, any townsperson could have told the occupying forces what was happening, maybe in exchange for money or amnesty. Every refugee and the families that helped them would have been arrested but no one ever squealed. Philip Halley, the ethicist, he keeps looking for clues. Who's organizing all of these efforts? Who's making this happen? Is there some wealthy donor, some secret charitable organization? And he found nobody, no organizers. No one even knew who brought the wreaths to the doors. There was a pastor and his wife who offered care and encouragement to the people who were hosts. But even after the war, these pastors and their whole town refused credit, refused thanks for this rescue effort. They insisted they'd done nothing special. They said we were just being good neighbors. At this point, Philip Halley, the famous cruelty researcher, he's on a whole new kick. He believed that he had found the opposite of cruelty, the absolute fruit of good, just what it is that a seed of goodness can grow into if a person nurtures it over time. He said the opposite of cruelty, the absolute fruit of good, is hospitality. 
Does this surprise anyone to think of hospitality as the ultimate good? Maybe hospitality doesn't seem that powerful to you. Maybe it just brings up images of hot dishes or memories of scrambling to clean your room as a kid before a dinner party started. Or maybe you relate to the Minnesota stereotype, right? You'll drop a meal off to someone in a heartbeat, but no one's ever seen the kitchen where it was made. <laughs> to get a sense of where Hallie might have been coming from, let's look at his definition of cruelty. I'm sorry, of hospitality. Hospitality, he says, is an action, individual or collective, that lifts up the dignity of someone's body and soul at once, shows them they matter. And it actually reduces or even reverses the power difference between the giver and the receiver. So you'll notice this is actually the perfect inversion of cruelty. When you show hospitality to somebody, you go beyond well wishes. You use your own resources and actions to engage in love and sacrifice and prove to them that their bodies and minds and spirits deserve care. And you humble yourself in the process. You act like a servant while someone else is an honored guest. So this seems really nice. But do we actually think we're prepared to do this? Here up on the screen is my home. I love it. I take naps on that couch. I read those books. I try to keep that plant alive. When I come here after a long day, nobody bothers me. When I'm worried about a patient, when I've screwed up at a meeting, I know I can come home and shake it off. In fact, I think knowing I have a place to call my own probably helps me through these long days. I can get through most things, busyness and awkwardness, knowing I can come home and put on my PJs and shake it off. But what happens when I let someone into my home? They could make noise while I'm trying to nap. They could blast music I don't like, or they could break my plant. They could eat the chocolate I was saving for a special occasion. If I let them stay long enough, which we do with a lot of our relationships, like with a spouse or a good friend or a child, they could break my heart. Do you see how this is different from just kindness? I'm being kind when I give money to someone at an intersection. We both feel good. But then my window rolls back up, and a few minutes later, I'm back in my slippers. I've got my TV shows on again. It cost me just a few dollars. It cost me none of my comfort. I was never vulnerable, right? When we're hospitable, we compromise the integrity of our comfort zones. In fact, I think we could actually say hospitality is generosity plus vulnerability. I think Philip Halley might be right that hospitality is the absolute fruit of goodness. It certainly seems like God is hospitable towards us. In fact, when we read the Bible, we constantly see examples of Jesus being hospitable, showing this, hospitality, showing this generosity plus vulnerability, and doing it in ways that lift up the dignity of others' body and souls. He humbled himself during his ministry to serve people with meals and wisdom and healing and physical touch, even when it risked his standing and his safety. Let's read a story from the Bible and think about Halley's definition of hospitality. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He said, take this 
and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. But here, at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. Jesus knew someone was going to betray him that night. How did he deal with that? He didn't seek revenge. He didn't hide himself. He threw a party. In John's account of Jesus' life, it's actually in this moment that Jesus gently bathes and dries the feet of his friends, including Judas, the man who was about to betray him. Imagine you found out your loved one was about to go on national news tomorrow and make a false accusation about you that would end your career and torpedo your relationships. Would you serve them food tonight? Do they deserve your hospitality, your vulnerability? You'd think that being betrayed and crucified after his dinner party would make Jesus less willing to throw parties for these people. But interestingly, sharing meals with others is most of what he's recorded doing after he was killed and resurrected. Here's another story from a few days later about Jesus and his friend Peter. Happened right after Jesus' resurrection, so recall that just days before this, Peter had denied knowing Jesus and fled from him in the moment when Jesus needed him the most. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed for shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only a few hundred yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. How many people have failed to honor Jesus before? When our faith fails, we get scared that God's going to punish us or teach us a painful lesson. Or maybe you just worry God will turn a cold shoulder to you. That might be what Peter was expecting. Wonder no more. Because the Bible actually offers us a pretty clear picture of what Jesus does for those who have turned their backs on him. What it seems to be is uh, to throw a beach barbecue. It's relational healing. Not because Peter grovels and repents endlessly, but just because he accepts, once again, Jesus' invitation to come and have some breakfast. What if God's main work in our world is to offer us hospitality for all eternity? Jesus tells us the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast. And in his world, big occasions like marriage were celebrated with parties that lasted days or weeks. So a host's job didn't stop when the dishes were done and the lost AirPods were returned to their owners. You had to provide lodging, housing for everybody. It means weeks of laundry, someone snoring two rooms over. The guests are probably ready to leave too. Or it's kind of awkward. You're worried about overstaying your welcome. By day three, I'm sure even the most extroverted host was eager to say goodbye. 
This is not what our God is like. Jesus says later, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Do not hear this as a metaphor. This is a literal party invitation, even for you, even on your worst days. The best guest room is made up, the pillows are fluffed, just because God has decided you should be there. God wants to have you as a long-term guest, just so that you can spend time together, enjoy each other, receive the best of what God has to offer forever. I will be honest, receiving hospitality is uncomfortable for me sometimes. The core claim of hospitality is that the guest deserves good things. If you feel unworthy or unlovable, chances are that you have been avoiding receiving hospitality from others. Since it feels confusing to be treated as an honored guest if you don't feel like you deserve the honor. Has it been a long time since you let yourself be lavishly hosted? In 2016, when I was a college student, I went to Cuba with some classmates. It was the week that the famous American embargo was lifting. We got sneaky visas issued from the State Department for a musical exchange trip, but we were there to visit churches that had been running without approval from the Cuban government. Many of them were preaching messages that went against state policies. So they were in this tenuous place every day. We brought news from the global church and we sang together and we joined them in prayer that they would be able to keep serving their neighborhoods no matter what came. One day I walked out of a church building and was approached by an eight-year-old girl who insisted that I follow her. So I left my group and I let her lead me into a hot, hot walk-up apartment building with no electricity. And I assumed that God was about to invite me to give my money generously to this family. And I was dismayed when I realized that I had left my wallet behind with my friends. This little girl's young mom greeted me in the doorway the only furniture was a wooden chair in the middle of the room, and they seated me right there. If you ever want to feel like a jerk, take the only chair in a room. <laughs> Try to take it from your host, even better. This mother explained to me that she and her daughter were Christians, and she wanted the honor of praying for me, simply because God was good and I was in her house. She stood behind me for a long time in prayer, blessing my studies, my